chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. I will begin reading in verse 25 and read down through the 36th verse of that chapter. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Let us now give our attention to the reading of God's Word. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and went off leaving him half dead. And by chance a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? May God bless this reading and in a few moments our examination of this portion of his holy and inspired word. Miss Elizabeth Wilson will lead a Bible study on Mondays from 10.30 to 11.30 at the home of President Vaughn. All women are invited to attend. The subject of the study is the tabernacle in Exodus and in Hebrews. It be a great experience. Now then, take your Bibles and turn to chapter 10 of the Gospel according to Luke. And then let me give you something of the background for this message. If you'll notice in the bulletin, it's entitled, The Day When the World Passed By on the Other Side. The reason for this is that a number of events happened during the past summer and some this fall which have caused this to be much upon my mind. First of all, there was a, an article which I had read based on a Manchester Guardian article, that's a newspaper in Manchester, England, called When the World Passed By on the Other Side by a Jewish lady named Peggy Mann. Mrs. Mann described a conference of 32 nations, all represented by important ambassadors and other diplomats, that occurred in July 1938, 40 years ago. They met to determine how they could rescue the Jews of the greater German Reich. At the time, only 350,000 Jews in Germany and 220,000 in Austria were in danger, but problems had begun. Tens of thousands of Jews had already been thrown into concentration camps and harassed by the black-booted SS troopers. But here's the urgent point of the conference that occurred in 1938 at Evian in France. Those 32 nations could have rescued all 570,000 Jews of Germany and Austria by each taking 
18,000 Jews. A generation later, the United States accepted 585,000 Cubans and Vietnamese refugees. There seems to be little doubt that such an action by these nations would have been a moral deterrent to the later extermination of five and a half million men, women, and children whose only crime was that they were Jews. It shows what can happen when a maniac possessed of the devil can run rampant over a people through race hatred and destroy them. The United States representative who had been appointed by President Roosevelt to attend that conference and was chairman of it agreed with the others in limiting Golda Meir, who was at that time only 40 years of age, to just a few minutes to speak. The minutes of the meeting were to be edited in such a way that nothing should be said that would be insulting to the German Reich. But all of the nations there maintained that because of immigration quotas and other reasons, they could not accept any immigrants of the Jewish people into their nation. The United States delegate said that he would accept exactly what the law allowed, which would be 27,730, provided that they would be able to pay their way out of Germany. The Reich saw to it that they couldn't by limiting them to taking only five, the equivalent of about $5 out of Germany. Well, after this, Hitler made a speech. And in his speech, he derided the other world which he said, and I want to quote him exactly, which is oozing sympathy for the poor, tormented people, but remains hard when it comes to helping them. And then he informed the South African diplomat, we shall solve the Jewish problem in the immediate future. The Jews will simply disappear. Four months later, a front-page article appeared in the official newspaper of the Gestapo, and it said, and I quote, because it is necessary, and because we no longer hear the world screeching, and because, after all, no power on earth can hinder us, we will now bring the Jewish question to its totalitarian and total solution. That translated into history meant the extinction of six million human beings. If you watched on television last week, you may have seen on the Today program an unusual art exhibit, which was to take place, I believe, in the city of Philadelphia. It was an exhibit made from the crudest materials that could be gathered, sketches of roll call in those dreadful concentration camps at Auschwitz and Belsen and Dachau and Treblinka. Sketches of people who were beaten with whips until the last calorie of energy was exhausted, and then they were put to death. At this own meeting that took place on the beautiful shores of Evian, and I've been there in France, they heard reports from Jews in Germany who told how they were treated in the concentration camps. They listened amidst the beauty of the surroundings to this report. Any Jew who wishes to hang himself is asked first to put a piece of paper in his mouth 
with his number on it so that we may know who he is. Sketches like this were made by prisoners who were shot when they were found out, but nonetheless, in the providence of God, some of them were preserved. And so an art, ex art exhibit in Philadelphia displays man's inhumanity to man because some gifted Jewish artists wished to, to keep in our mind's eye what the world can do when it passes by on the other side and persons are selfish and look to their own interests and nothing else. And then when I think of the other thing that prompted me to speak about the Samaritan, I remember a man that I met in Vietnam in 1965. He had a filming crew. He was taking pictures of little Vietnamese children who were wounded and who were hungry. He had an organization at that time called World Vision. And his name was Bob Pierce. He died on September the 6th of this year with leukemia. Listen to one of the tributes to him. How different the world would be today if, Christ, if the Christian church had been doing over the last hundred years what Bob Pierce led us to do in the most recent 25 years. Led the body of Christ to a more biblical compassion for the truly desperate of the globe and allowing his heart to be broken time and again he was used of God to bring physical and spiritual healing to untold numbers of the world. And when he became sick and had to give up his work, he organized what he could organize of a little relief organization and called it the Samaritan's Purse. And this is where our lesson comes from today, the Samaritan's Purse. So look at Luke chapter 10, and then we'll see the background of how we speak not only to the world, but to the church and community in which we live and how we assume our individual responsibility. Jesus had been teaching. He had already asserted his claims as the Messiah. And now the opposition is beginning to draw in. People asked him this same question about three different times that I can recall. A man by the name of Nicodemus came to him and wanted to know how to inherit eternal life. And Jesus told him of the necessity of the new birth. And then there was a rich young ruler who came running and fell at his feet one day. And he had seen in Jesus a quality of life that he had never seen demonstrated in anyone else. And he wanted to know how he could have it. And Jesus looked at him, Mark tells us, and loved him. And Jesus told him, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Jesus asked him first if he had kept the commandments and he said that he had. But as it always happens when we claim we keep the commandments, we've always fallen short. He hadn't kept the commandments. His commandment was money. He wasn't willing to give it up. Jesus saw that his God was money. Are we really willing to give up every single thing for Jesus Christ? Well, here this lawyer. Lawyers have a way of asking questions. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test. He thought, I'll have some fun with this Galilean who came out of a carpenter's shop. I'll ask him some questions from the law. He may have some native shrewdness about him, but let's just see how smart he is. And so the lawyer said to him, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? You don't do anything to get an inheritance. 
What should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, since he was a lawyer, he put him back on the law. What's written in the law? How does it read to you? And the lawyer answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. When the world passed by on the other side, when the conference occurred at Evian, were we loving the Lord with all our heart? When terrible things happened here in the Southland, were we loving the Lord with all our heart? When terrible things happened in our own community where we could exert some influence to relieve someone else's suffering or misery or agony or pain, where's our heart, the seat of our emotions? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Read Time and Newsweek. Find out what's happening in Vietnam and Cambodia now. Find out how many millions are being put to death in Southeast Asia while the world passes by on the other side. When he answered with such a good thing as loving the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself, Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Well, he realized that he had painted himself into a corner because he knew he didn't love the Lord with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? Who is it that I am to love as I would love myself? I excuse a lot of faults in myself. Am I willing to be that loving and that kind toward other people? Jesus replied and said a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went off leaving him half dead. A certain priest was going down on the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Imagine this, a Jew. Jesus, the lawyer, it says, stood up tempting him so that he must have been seated like you are out in the congregation and he stood up and asked in the presence of all these Jews this question. And Jesus tells about a Jew, a Jew, mind you, who is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and who has been robbed and beaten and left dying on the road. And what great fortune he has. A certain priest comes by. I'm sure that when that wounded man opened his eyes, and if he could, and looked through the blood, and he saw the blue at the fringe of the garment of the priest, he thought, oh, praise God, here comes a priest. I know he'll help me. But the priest passed by on the other side. The priest passed by on the other side. And then here comes a man who has even more responsibility than a priest. Likewise a Levite. They're his own kinsmen. They're in his own church. A Levite also when he came to the place 
saw him and passed by on the other side. You don't like to look at people who are suffering. You don't like to look at black people when you don't like them. You don't like to look at liberals when you don't like them. I know, because I don't. <laughs> I don't. You don't like to look at conservatives when you don't like them. That's the way we are with our prejudices. And if you had a little sodium pentothal administered to you, you'd admit it. I've been too close to dying now to try to fool you, so I don't care if you know how I think. Uh, and it does, it improves your theology to get close to the gate. Uh, <laughs> it you can believe a lot more. <laughs> now then, we don't like to look at people. He saw him. I got to think about this. He saw him. He saw him. He saw him. He saw him. And I think about that judgment scene. When all of the people are gathered before the judgment throne of God, Matthew 25, and Jesus said to these people, uh, they, they said that, Lord, we never saw you hungry, and we never saw you in prison, and we never saw you thirsty and didn't give you anything to drink. We never saw you alone. Jesus said, there were people you didn't look. You didn't see because you didn't want to see. When you love someone, you become vulnerable. The next person who comes along in this magnificent story which Jesus told is a certain Samaritan. And when he said that, they all spat. Oh, how can he dare do that? Some tore their garments. Samaritan. Great day. Be like asking Martin Luther King to address the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, a, a Samaritan. He was on a journey and he came upon him and when he saw him, he, he felt compassion on him. He looked at the Samaritan and the Samaritan was, was not of his race and he thought, well, this guy's not going to help me. He's a Samaritan. But the Samaritan did help him. He reached down, looked at his wounds, he took some wine and poured it into the wounds because it had some antiseptic properties to it. He took some oil and softened the abrasions that were there. He must have torn up some of his own robes and put around him to make it more comfortable and better, bound him up. And then he had to lift him up and put him on his own beast and hobble alongside of him, holding him, on the donkey so he wouldn't fall off. And then when they came to the inn, that must have been quite a scene. They arrived at the inn, and it says, and he took care of him. That means he didn't just show up at the Holiday Inn and say, look, put this on my charge card and give this guy a room for the night. We'll see you. It says, he took care of him. He took care of him. That infers that he must have stayed up all night looking after this Jew, mind you. And he is a Samaritan. And they had no dealings with the other. 
but he took care of him. And on the next day, he even went miles further. On the next day, he took out two denarii, some money, and he gave it to the innkeeper, and he said to the innkeeper, you take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. I think that innkeeper must have known this Samaritan. At least when he saw a Samaritan taking care of a Jew like that, when he told him, I'll pay your money back when I come this way, he said, well, I can trust that guy. He's not like anyone else I ever met. He left some money. And he said, when I come back, I'll pay you anything else that it costs to take care of him. We sing a hymn called, Go Zion, haste thy mission high fulfilling. Give of thy sons to bear the message glorious. Give of thy wealth to send them on their way. And then there's this part of a stanza that says, And all thou spendest, Jesus will repay. He's like the good Samaritan. He takes care of us. And he says to those who look after us in his name, whatever you spend, when I see you, I'll pay it back. I'll take care of it. What do we do? How do we get this? I think I had the best question that any student ever asked me, asked last week in class. Uh, in, in my office back here. They, we know we have prayer meeting on Wednesday night, and I hope sometimes you'll come on Wednesday evening. We've been meeting here in Gaither Chapel, and Estelle Brousseau is a magnificent Bible teacher. She's one of the best I've ever seen. I feel like a nickel standing by a dollar. When <laughs> she is very clever and uh, just says the right things. And we have been going through Philippians because up at Wheaton College, uh, she was an assistant to Dr. Merrill Tinney there, uh, who said she is the smartest student he's had in 55 years of teaching. And uh, Dr. Tinney teaches Philippians, and so Estelle has been helping me in teaching Philippians here. And we do it as a colloquy, a question and answer. And we came to that magnificent passage of Scripture that says, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And this is the question the student asked me. How do you get the mind of Christ? How do you get the mind of Christ? Do you want the mind of Christ? Do you realize what it'll cost you? Paul lost his mind on the road to Damascus. And he got the mind of Christ. He got a new mind. And so when Paul saw trouble in the church back in Philippi, a little fribbling, that fighting that goes on in every church, who's going to get this room, who's going to get that room, uh, who's going to take care of this, or I did that last week and I'm not going to do it this week, and all the bickering that goes back and forth. And what does Paul say in correcting this? Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ, as one person has put it, is the disposition of Christ. How's your disposition? It's a good question to ask. How's your disposition? Does your wife think you have the mind of Christ? Pretty good tip. Does your father or your mother think you have the mind of Christ? 
Do the people you have to work with think you have the mind of Christ? Are you operating on that frequency? Are you sending out a message that's clear from there? Well, that's what we're told. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that's what Jesus was teaching this lawyer who asked him a question. Now, let me say very plainly, this does not teach salvation by works. That's why I was certain that I put into the hymn singing today, not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. You can't do it. You need the atonement. You need the cross. You need the mind of Christ, but when we have the mind of Christ through the atonement and the new birth, then we are to operate toward other people in that way. Philippians 5, 6, 7, and 8 is a great hymn, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. You remember how the disciples argued going into the upper room? They were quarreling about which one was going to be greatest, who was going to be the prime minister in the kingdom that he was going to set up. And Jesus walked inside and picked up a towel and a bowl of water and went around washing their feet to demonstrate to them that the way he thinks and the way they think is not there. Being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and becoming obedient. Obedient. The test of faith is obedience. Obedient to the point of death. That's death to self, even death on a cross. Therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, and I love that, that's the name of his humiliation, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean that we work for salvation, but when we are saved, Salvation is being worked out in us toward other people. I firmly believe that the root of all heresy is salvation by works. But salvation that is true is salvation that demonstrates the work of Christ in us toward other people. My little boy years ago, one of our little children, I found this in my notes when he was only seven years old. Uh, when we'd finished reading this story at the breakfast table for devotions, he said, Daddy... Was the Good Samaritan a Christian? <laughs> That's a good question. Was the Good Samaritan a Christian? And I said, honey, I don't know. He did a very Christian thing. And I hope he came to know Jesus as his Savior. And Lord, you see, we're not saved by doing good deeds because none of us could do enough of them. There is no way. But Jesus gave this as a demonstration of the fact that if this half-breed, renegade, hated Samaritan would demonstrate this type of love, then we 
Don't even ask the question, who is my neighbor? Does he qualify for my love? Anyone qualifies for our love. Now let me tell you something close at hand, and I'll close. We have a wonderful man. I don't even know whether he's here yet this morning. I can't see when I take my glasses off. Uh, his name is Bill Wood. Bill comes in late every Sunday. You know why? He's been out at the Juvenile Evaluation Center. That's a nice, dignified name for a jail. For young people who come out of horrible backgrounds. And Bill's a member of the Montreat Church. He's an ordained Baptist minister, but he is a member of the Montreat Church. He's never preached here. But great sakes, his life preaches more sermons than anything I've ever said. He goes out to that juvenile evaluation center and has for ten solid years teaching young people about the love of Jesus. One day last May, a big boy by the name of Fred, big black fellow, husky, heavy and strong, with the IQ of only 60, saw him when he came out of a building and came over close to where Bill was. He took a butcher knife that was 14 inches long, stuck it in Bill's throat, and told him to drive him away. Bill had to let him in the car. The boy kept the knife at his throat and said, I'll kill you. I want you to take me to your house. Bill was not going to take him where his sister Winifred was, alone at home, and he said, no, Fred, I won't take you there. You can go ahead and kill me if you want to, but I won't take you there. Then the boy said, I want you to take me to Wilmington. And Bill said, I'll tell you what I'll do, Fred. I'll drive you to Asheville, and I'll buy you a bus ticket to Wilmington. But I want you to put the knife down. This somehow appealed to the boy's mind. Now, since then, one of the attendants out there has been murdered, has been killed. But Bill and Fred drove to Asheville to the bus station. Bill had successfully managed to talk him out of the knife and locked it up in the car. He took him inside and bought the bus ticket and called the police so that they could take him off the bus at the next place and hold him so that he would not hurt anyone. Here is a man who believes the gospel. Here is a man who went through Moody Bible Institute who has a great desire to win people's souls to the Lord, but a great interest in their life and their body too. The thing that impresses me about him, and which impresses Bill's son, and which he wrote in a letter which I had, Bill's son, Bill Jr., is a distinguished professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. In lecturing to a group of people he told about this incident in which his father, the preacher who lives here in Montreat, was kidnapped by Fred. And he said, you know, surgeons have to wash their hands and wash their hands and wash their hands and see to it that sterile conditions exist because if we don't, patients would die from germs. But he said, my father was not afraid to die. 
Because his hands are clean. His hands are clean. He has been to the cross where Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid the price for all of his sins. Now there is no discrepancy between our living a life that depends upon the grace of Jesus for our salvation and we're clean and unafraid of death and a life which shows merit and work day by day not working for salvation but working out the salvation which is already in us by faith in Jesus Christ I could tell you of sweet little Sarah Wetzel who took a pink rose and placed it on a white satin coffin when her baby died and then later wanted to build for us a little play school here in Montreal. Not difficult, the circumstances have not been easy, and yet, out of the love of Jesus for other little children, she worked. I saw a mother last week speaking of some of the difficulties that she'd encountered break into tears. But Sarah's working away, not handing out books on it, but working. Now then, this is where the rubber meets the road. When we go out of the church, a lot of people can talk about it, hand out books on it, lecture on it. I can. It's far easier to preach it than it is to live it. But are we going to show it to people day by day that Jesus paid it all, that he bought us from our sins, and because he did, every single person is a candidate for our love and no one is going to pass by that we are not going to pass by on the other side and allow any person to let us look at them and not know that Jesus loves them and we love them too. Our Heavenly Father, it's so much easier to read these wonderful stories in the Bible and to go on home and eat lunch and forget about them than it is to take them into our hearts and begin to translate them into the love of Jesus day by day, even for people that don't love us. But we pray that you will help us to be crucified with Christ, to die to self, that he might live in us. And help us so to live that the words of this hymn might be a reality and that our lips and lives might show to others the love of the Lord Jesus. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the help of the Holy Spirit our teacher and guide be and abide with you all now and forevermore.